guess what time it is? It's teacher time. This is Every Child's Champion podcast. And I'm Sarah Beach, your host. The beloved educator Rita Pearson said, Every child deserves a champion, an adult who will never give up on them, who understands the power of connection and insists that they become the best they can possibly be. And that's the purpose of this podcast, to support and encourage you, the real children's champions out there, who do understand the power of your connection and who don't give up on those kids. And that's why you're here, right? Well, we've got a lot of good stuff in store for you. So sit back, buckle up, let's get going, champions. Woohoo! So we have a fun guest today, an intriguing guest, very learned guest. His name is Alan Rosales. Alan's been in the early childhood field for over 27 years. During that time, he's been a teacher, he's been an education manager, he's been a coach, he's been a professor, he still is a professor, national presenter, still is. He is an author, and now he's currently the Director of Professional Learning and Development for the Carol Robertson Center for Learning in Chicago. In this role, he designs and facilitates professional learning communities for leadership and for teaching staff. In the process of trying to enhance the learning climate and the culture of the organization, he's published several books. He's published an early childhood curriculum book for teachers that was titled Mathematizing an Emergent Math Curriculum Approach for Young Children. Really good book. In the summer of 2021, Alan published a series of four children's books that are focused on supporting and developing children's resiliency skills. So that's what I have Alan here today to talk to us about, specifically the topic of resiliency. Because we're in a situation right now, we're in a, we're in a time when we really, really need this, right? So welcome, Alan. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just, I'm just glad you were willing to do this and able to do this. Uh, let's get right into this. Did I'm really interested in your books. I'm really interested in the children's books. Well, I've already got your mathematizing book, and I've used it quite a bit. I'm going to put the link for that on our podcast notes so that people can look that up, because anybody that's working with pre-K kids should have that book. There's so much in there. And I've quoted it. I've probably stolen ideas from it over the last couple of years. And anyway, it's just really good. So we're going to talk about resilience and the impact of trauma on kids. I'd like to know a little bit about you. Can you just share a little bit about your work, past and present? I know I gave a brief bio, brief summary, but tell us a little bit about, you know, what you got, what got you into this field, what you've done over the years and why sort of why you landed where you're at. Absolutely. It's interesting because my mother was a Head Start teacher for 30 years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it runs in the family. And my wife is a, a preschool teacher as well. So wow, it's in the family. And I remember my mother would take me to um, after school programming when I was young. And that's what that was my where I obtained my love for early childhood, seeing the collaboration amongst teachers, the love that they would give the children, the joy from the families of getting that support, you know, and so over the years, I, I fell in love with the field. So she'd take you to the Head Start Center and you'd hang out there? 
Is that what yeah, they had a school age program in there. So oh, wow. um, after school, I would go there and hang out and go on field trips, do some activity. It was a lot of fun. It's funny because both my kids grew up in childcare too, because I was a director, and oh, yeah. uh, neither one of them wants anything to do with. <laughs> <laughs> I think I really ruined them. I, I made them do. I made them do so much work as uh, as the director owner. You know. Oh right, I can see that. They're both good with kids. They're both really good. I mean, well, one is a teacher. She's an eighth grade teacher, though. But neither one of them really wants to work with little kids. So anyway. Yeah, and so over the years, I was in the classroom, and then I became administrator. And over the years, I've seen the inequities that have occurred in our communities for three decades and many things haven't changed you know Mm. and so one of the gaps that we have in our community in the early childhood field is robust professional development for teachers and what happens often is a couple things for one you might have teachers that go get their certification at a university and as they're finishing their course they have a web of support they have to do their internships. They have a teacher, they have a principal, they have a mentor, and they have the professor. And they all work together tandemly to support their professional growth. So they grow exponentially quickly. And then they're thrown into the field, and that web of support is taken away. They're pretty much left to fend for themselves. And then they're provided professional development that's drive through training. They'll get one training, no support, no coaching, no follow up, no collaboration. And so they do nothing with it. And so imagine this happens to us for decades. Mm -hmm. So there's so much uh, lost opportunity. And so what I'm working on now at the Carol Robertson Center is we've created this professional development system where we have, we've built a web of support for every teacher. And so starting in November, we're, we're going to implement professional learning communities. We have two tracks, one STEM track, science, technology, engineering, math, another one, an anti-bias literacy track that focus on literature. Mm -hmm. And we'll meet twice a month for six months. They all have a coach. Nice. The the director will provide reflective supervision based off of that content. They have a facilitator, and they're going to have time to talk to each other collaboratively to lesson plan. Nice. Wow. The content that we're providing will be um, living. Mm -hmm. It's like this living entity, this topic that is lives on it doesn't die off right 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 and so once you do that that transforms a school or a center's climate and culture because now this is our professional development entity where we work together this is how we develop exponentially and this is how you create expert teachers and you're creating a culture of learning so all teachers always expect to be ongoing learner learners right together that's awesome. Yeah, and, and you know, that passion dies off sometimes and, and actually in many places because of the lack of, of support. support. Yeah, that's kind of where my passions lie too, is supporting teachers. I agree with you that we kind of hang people out to dry as soon as they get their credential. And a lot of times they get into positions before they're even finished with their credential or with their degree. And even though they're getting a degree, they're still not getting any support. They're working full-time teaching, and they have to, you know, finish their school at the same time, a lot of them, at least a lot of the ones that I've worked with. 
but there's nothing internally in their places of work for them to hold on to or for them to settle into. So I love that idea that you're creating that culture. It takes time. Well, that's awesome. That's exciting. So you mentioned something about you've seen a lot of inequities. Can you expound on that a little bit? You're in Chicago. Yes, absolutely. Here in Chicago. And and this is one of the reasons why I wrote this four book uh, storybook series. And what happens is many times, especially in marginalized communities, for example, black and brown boys and girls, mm-hmm. they'll get labeled, right? They'll get labeled as aggressive, as not motivated, always triggered, high anxiety. And so they get labeled and that becomes a bias. And once you have a bias, you know, your reactions, your feelings, your thoughts turn against an individual. And so with this book series, I want everybody to understand the root cause for some of the behaviors that are seen in the classroom and why deep empathy is needed for these children. And so, for example, one of the books, well, all of them talk about resilience. But what I did is I showed real life pictures of our neighborhoods. Oh, really? We'll see. Do you mind if I show one real quick here? No, not at all. I was just pulling it up myself. Oh, great. I had the link and I purchased one of the four books so that I could review it. Now I got to find it here. You go ahead and pull it up though. And, and, uh, oh, sure. I have one right here. So, for example, this one's called Alicia Learns to Be Resilient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what you see inside the illustrations is you'll see real life neighborhoods. And in these neighborhoods, you'll have graffiti, you'll have rundown buildings. You'll have grocery stores that just sell low-quality foods. Yeah, fit, yeah. The junk marketing food. is, yeah, junk food. Mm-hmm. There's violence. When the children wake up, they hear noises right away. You know, in some cases, it's violence. And they walk to school. They have to, some of these children are walking through viaducts that are long and deep and dirty and graffitied and very scary. And so by the time they get to school, their central nervous system is already triggered because it's scary. My whole experience just to get to school is a scary affair. Even walking with a parent. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In all these books, that's the beginning stages of these books is I'd like teachers and families and educators to understand this is the experience that they're coming with to school on a daily basis. If some of them are sensitive or are triggered by noise, it's not because that's what they want to do. It's because the environment has placed that within them just going to school. That's something I had not thought about. I mean, I thought about the way kids come in with high anxiety and their nervous system already already on overdrive, but I haven't thought about it in terms of just walking to school. From the moment they wake up, they hear noises. Mm-hmm. kind of food they have for breakfast, the journey to school, being with others that are feeling the same way. And this four-story book series, each one of the characters are from the same classroom. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. So Alicia and Ian and, and Jorge and Jamal, they, they're all in the same classroom. So it's the same classroom listed in the Interesting. Storybook. Oh, cool. Different, different perspectives. So, you know, one comes from this neighborhood, another one comes from this neighborhood. Same classroom, same teacher. Wow. I was trying to find it. Let's take a second here and let me find it. And we can edit this back together as far as sound. But I'm just, let me find, I've opened it up and now I, now I can't find what I did with it. So I wanted to look at the actual book. 
the one that I purchased was Jamal's story. Oh, yes, Jamal. Tell us a little bit about Jamal's story while I look for this book, okay? Sure. So Jamal is a child, and all of these are true stories, by the way. Wow. These are all our children, the children that I've supported over the years, different scenarios, you know. And so Jamal lives with his grandma. The parents are not in the picture. And from the minute that he wakes up, he hears some loud noises. And grandmother and child, they know what that means. And so they walk to school, same thing, run down building, graffiti, suspicious people. They're scared as they're walking by the police station, as they're walking by the grocery store, as they're walking by the park, you know, run down parks. Police stations are scary, you know. A lot of these children, uh, their family members have been taken by police for whatever reason. And so that's a scary environment. As this book continues, they engage in the classroom. You know, the teacher welcomes them, Mrs. Cruz, with love and, and support. And she has activities lined up for them. And so each book, ha- um, the children will go through three activities, but they have a hard time adapting. What I like about Jamal's book that he says when they ask him, hey, do you want to play with us here? He says, he holds his arm and says, no, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you hear that all the time. No, I don't want to. Yeah. And he goes to another area and he's, and that's the, the pattern. No, I don't want to. And so he goes to the library area where it's a calming environment and he starts to cry. Oh, wow. And the ticket comes and has a conversation. It's a similar process. You know, they can adapt. They can engage. They break down, and that's usually what happens in the classroom with, with some of these children. In all of the books, they find a way to cope. And so they, um, they either go draw stories or write stories about their experience. And they bring it back to the teacher and share it, and she's excited. She tells them how happy she is that, that they're being resilient. And then they show it to the classroom. And in Jamal's case, his grandma sings him a song on the way to school. After he says, Grandma, are we safe here? And she sings a song, right, as a strategy to help him redirect that fear. And so at the end of the, the storybook for Jamal, he teaches the class how to sing that song, which is this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Wow. And they all sing together. And um, then he's joyful. You know, like it took this whole process to overcome his anxiety, to co- overcome his fear. And he shares that with his grandma at the end, and she's proud of him, and they head back home with the, you know, the same background in the neighborhoods and so forth. So are all the characters in your stories, are they pre-K kids, or it's not really stated what age they're? Are they supposed to be pre-K? I would say pre-K kindergarten kids. Okay. okay. I just finally just found my copy here. <laughs> um, so what would you say to a typical pre-K teacher who's not living in an unsafe place and coming to work and in comes her children, some of whom are coming in like this with, with a heightened, their nervous system is on fight or flight or or freeze mode. And a lot of them are ready to put up their defenses or whatever. And, or they're certainly not ready to just join the play. (laughs) So what do you think is most important for a teacher to realize or to do. Sure. So it takes an integrated approach to engage these children. So you have to look at the learning environment and you have to look at the physical environment. 
So something that we've been working on is creating calm corners. Not a library area, but a, a different purpose. So this calm corner is a place where children learn when they're feeling a certain way, that that calm corner is there for them to go and calm down and to regulate these feelings, these emotions. And there's materials there, there's soft elements there to remind them that they're safe. They're safe. Absolutely. The other part is incorporating mindfulness activities, social emotional activities. As soon as they walk in, you know, there might be a visual there for them to express themselves how they're feeling. You know, so you might have a feelings chart. You might have some drawing materials where they have the opportunity to draw their feelings. You know, and this this allows them to get get those feelings out. I see. And then research tells us that the best time to teach social emotional learning is during calm times. Don't wait until a child is triggered or misbehaving, right? You have to provide books like this and other kinds of social emotional learning books that are going to teach how to um, regulate their emotions, give them strategies if they're feeling this way and what they can do to support their experience. It almost makes me think that they should have a routine in place Absolutely. in which they immediately sit and read a, a quiet story like this or sit and read the same story, you know, every day where it's a good positive message that you're safe here. And think about the ways that we individualize for kids. And that's certainly one way we could individualize for kids that we know just based on behavior are coming in a state, you know, that are having a hard time coming in, you know. Yeah, having a having a, a routine that's not just join in wherever we're all at, you know, just join in, but but in fact an intentional practice for that child. Here's what the routine is gonna be. Absolutely. And there isn't a one size fits all. So you have to have multiple opportunities for children to learn how to self-regulate in the way they can do better. Well, first of all, what's your definition for resiliency? Well, the general definition that's out there is, is being able to get up from adversity and move forward. Being able to adapt and then find equilibrium uh, in your situation. That's in general. What I've noticed in our communities is that we have a lot of resilient families and children because they do get up from adversity and keep going. But the problem is that sometimes it's not strategic. What do you mean? It's not intentional in terms, it's just coping because they have to? Yes, yes. And over time, that's, that can be very hurtful. And so what I did with this book is I incorporated some of the, what research tells us is, is uh, some of the resilient skills that children and adults need to overcome. And so in all of these storybooks, I included critical thinking, planning, motivation, agency, and other skills that, that are needed so that when a situation arises, they have strategies to incorporate strategically instead of just having to cope with it without any strategies. So tell me again what you included. I want to hear that again. Specific strategies for being able to cope. Absolutely, yes. And developing these resiliency skills. And so, for example, number one, they have to be able to become aware of those feelings and emotions. Step one. And then they have to be able to deal with those, right? That's an intentional skill that you have to have. 
you have to have critical thinking because it takes critical thinking to figure out, hey, what's happening to me? What are some things I can do? So that's where you're talking about strategic. Is that what you mean? Like teaching them, specifically teaching them, uh, okay, A, we're teaching them what emotions are and how to express them. And so emotional literacy. And then we're teaching them how to cope or self-regulate, right? We're giving them self-regulation skills and emotional regulation skills. And then you're saying critical thinking. And so are you specifically talking about teaching problem solving about real life situations? Or do you just mean in general? We're saying to those life situations. Okay. And then um, you need planning skills. You have to be able to plan how you're going to deal with this situation. And then you need motivation and agency because you have to get up and do it. And so these skills are a way for children to, if we're able to talk about these and teach things intentionally, strategically, they can use these skills when they're confronting traumatic situations or when they're feeling a certain way. Well, that's a lot to ask of a three or four year old. (laughs) You know? That's why in in the storybooks, in all of them, they all have the different, the, the similar processes. So, for example, when they have a calm corner. So, you know, they have to go there to um, self-regulate. And then they all go and draw pictures of their experiences. In two of the books, the children go and draw their experience of them coming to school. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a strategy there. Hey, go, go draw. Go draw your experience so that you can express yourself, so you can share with your teacher. And then their agency comes in where they're able to share it with the other children. Hey, this is my experience. And then what's interesting in the, in the Jamal book, as the child is sharing with the group, the other kids had similar experiences. And they would say, oh, I'm scared coming to school too. You know? So now Jamal is thinking, oh, it's, it's not just me. It's my friends as well. And that can trigger more conversations. And so in each one of these storybooks, those strategies are implemented through a preschooler kindergarten lens. I was going to ask, what are some of the other strategies that are included in the books? You've got Jamal drawing pictures, and obviously the calming corner is a strategy, right? I can use that to calm down. In all the four storybooks, they go to the writing area or to the art area. And either they paint a picture or they draw a storybook or they draw letters. Those are the strategies for the little ones. Okay. The reason why I did it that way is because research tells us that children learn best when they are able to revisit the same content through a different scenario. That's going to help teachers in their curriculum planning. So many times they'll read a good book and then they try to find a book that's similar to it, you know, just so that they can continue with that topic. But here you have a four storybook series where you could do that because they all connect to each other. They all have similar processing. They all integrate the resilience skills that the children need to have better opportunities to overcome certain situations. It's interesting. I'm thinking about kids and just getting them to talk about what the traumatic events or the scary things are. And I don't see a lot of teachers necessarily going there, trying to encourage kids to talk about their lives, their real life experiences. Absolutely. I I think they try to maybe, I think 
they might be trying to shelter them from having that conversation, but it should be the opposite, actually. They should be able to lean into that conversation and have books like these where they can have models. Well, let's look at Jamal's experience. Let's look at Alicia. Look what Ian did. Oh, that reminds me of when Jorge had his family and that they didn't speak English, so this mm-hmm. this happened. So we, we need more more stories that are real life at this point, especially in our in marginalized communities, because this is what they're going through, right? Yeah. They're not living in farms anymore. Right. They're not living in, in oceans anymore. Even though those are fine to read, you know, for recreational purposes. They, what they need right now, especially during this pandemic, is solutions. They need to see their experience in the books. And they need to have teachers that are trained to have these conversations. Right. So teachers need training on trauma, right? They need training on the impact of experiences. Even just learning more about the children that you're working with, whether or not they've, you think they've experienced trauma or whether or not there's been any behavioral issues or anything to suggest that they may have, just learning about where they're coming from and what their lives are like. A lot of teachers wouldn't even think about what does it mean to walk to school, you know? Absolutely. That's why I wrote these books. (laughs) (laughs) For that exact reason. Yeah, and And, you included the... I'm not blaming any teacher. They just don't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? Until it's brought to your attention. And I'm hoping that that's what this series will do, is bring to attention what's happening, what's the root cause of why some children are acting the way they do, and how we can go about Closing that gap, that inequity. And at the same time, you know, these books, it's going to take a well-trained teacher because they're not easy to read, you know? Mm -hmm. I did that on purpose. Because sometimes we provide children books that are too simple. Fun, but simple. But if a teacher learns to chunk these storybooks into pieces, delve into these conversations doesn't have to be all at once maybe you read five pages now delve deep later on in the afternoon or maybe tomorrow you revisit and you go deeper and then connect it to their real to their lives and then we connect this book to next week's book which is another resilience book and see how those two children coped and how they adapted and what strategies they used to overcome this will bring an awareness not only to the teachers but to the children the administrators, you know, because now they have a role to play in this as well. Yeah. And to the families. Sometimes even families don't understand that your children are feeling a certain way just walking to school. Right. They have to learn to be that web of support on one end and then the teacher on one end, the administrator on another, and so forth. And I think not too many people in general, including whether we're talking about parents or teachers or family members that are involved with the child, not too many people have a trauma lens. You got it. Right? Absolutely. And they're not thinking about the, the nervous system and the, and the way that things get triggered or the, the impact that it has physiologically on kids and uh, buildup of stress and what that does to a child's, not only their brain, but their, but their, their f- physical being, right? And- yeah. And one of the cohorts that I, that I presented now for like four years, the anti-bias literacy cohort, we train teachers how to have children become authors and illustrators. And so the children will draw 
pictures based on the storybooks they read and their own lives. Mm-hmm. They develop them over time. It could take a month or a month and a half. There's multiple books that they read. And you'd be surprised. These children know about death. These children know about shootings. Wow. One of the storybooks just says, you know, this, this gangbanger just killed the people in my neighborhood. And then the other little girl said, yeah, I remember that one. And, and nobody knew because they're four. You think, oh, they're, they're oblivious, right? They're oblivious that no. And then they take this with them to grammar school. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't had that conversation, it doesn't go away. And assumptions and interpretations and actions and attitudes build and develop off of that experience. So we, gotta, we have to tackle it head on. Early yeah. on, yeah. It reminds me when you mentioned it, they know about death. That's what I was thinking earlier with some of the kids in my experience have experienced death or loss. And I've done some in the past, done some presenting on that topic of grief and loss and with children and, and just how important it is to just be honest and be real, you know, and not make up stories about the person is just sick or the person is on vacation or whatever, you know, and just being truthful. And, but so many people want to shelter kids. And I know it's a topic that not too many teachers feel comfortable delving into talking about, right? Let alone things like gang shootings or any of the violence that's going on. It may not be a part of their own experience. You know, a teacher, you could have a white teacher coming into a Head Start classroom and her life is so removed from that experience that that child is having or that family is in and being afraid. She doesn't want to offend. She certainly doesn't want to be be racist or be biased, you know, say the wrong thing, right? And so they just avoid the conversations. And so there's got to be a way that teachers can, uh, what, what do you recommend for teachers, especially white teachers who don't have the lens, there might be implicit bias, there might be certainly misunderstanding of the culture or the situations that these kids are in, and they don't want to be that way. They don't want to be biased or inappropriate. Where's a good starting point? There's more resources that are coming out. You know, the, these books are one resource. Uh, having having uh, surveys with the families that are honest are, it's, it's another way because the families, they're the ones that know what they're living, you know, having surveys about trauma, having surveys about what works best for the children is another way. Finding a community out there, like this podcast, right, that's bringing these topics is really important. There's more popping up, you know, more podcasts that are talking about this kind of, of um, experiences. Find those, uh, find a community or school that's focused on either has a trauma-informed care lens or a social justice social lens. Justice. Uh-huh. That has good leadership and the teachers that are there to support the community. And, you know, it is going to take some resilience on the part of the teachers as well. Because when you deal with these communities that are in trauma or experience high violence, you're going to have to be resilient. Sometimes you might have an experience that you're uncomfortable with. Sometimes they talk to you a a little bit louder. (laughs) Sometimes they're emotional, right? Right. You have to be able to... Adapt and adjust and and accept, right? You know, the word that comes to me is meek, meekness. You know, that comes from my faith, (laughs) being Uh meek. Uh Uh-huh. 
And that's the uh, the ability to absorb sometimes pain, sometimes language that being able to absorb it and transform it into something positive, you know, giving back through us uh, either through a strength-based lens or strength-based way. It takes courage to... I was going to say, it's not something you can shy away from. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't shy away or be afraid. Or if you are afraid, it's finding the courage to be open and, and be willing to learn. Think of Brene Brown and the, the, the idea of courage. She's done so much amazing writing about these topics. And a lot of what her message is, is just, you know, being authentic. And if you don't know something, being honest, it's not your lived experience, but being open to the fact that everyone has their own experience. And it's important to know, you know, the specific lives that you're talking about, or the lives of the families that you're working with, and not shy away or not uh, be afraid. I've experienced that myself in terms of Willing to talk about bias, willing to talk about my white privilege, uh, you know, being willing to talk about my ignorance in a lot of ways of the experience of people of color and how much room I have to grow, you know. And I'm constantly confronted with things like fear of offending somebody or fear of <laughs> fear of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing and things like guilt and shame. But I've learned that that's no excuse for not delving into those topics, that I just have to be real and say, these are my feelings, these are my experiences, and I'm open, right? I'm just open to learning what else I need to know so that I can have a higher level of understanding. That's a wonderful disposition. (laughs) Well, it's it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a realization I've had because it's it's easy to avoid it as a white person, a person, a privileged person in in our society. You know, it's easy to avoid to just go on and live and and think, well, somebody else will fix those societal ills. You know, (laughs) somebody else will. But, you know, you have to be brave and just be willing to be in there, I think and learn because people that have privilege should be using their privilege to help solve these problems. I had another question for you, just in terms of the teacher resiliency, you were mentioning how important it is for teachers to be resilient. And what are some of the things that they need to do or that people who support teachers need to do for them to help them? So there's actually a a book that I'm working on right now (laughs) that when I have a little bit more of time, I will finish it. Basically, developing strength-based practitioners. Mm. And so what happens is the first thing that we have to work on with teachers is transform their mindsets from deficit-based to strength-based mindsets. And a strength-based mindset will have as one where teachers believe, and educators in general, that everybody has talents and interests and that those talents and interests can be leveraged to support their learning. If we come to the table with the mindset that we say, oh, these kids are too aggressive, they don't want to learn, or this community will never change, or this administrator or this parent, you know, they're always complaining. If that's the attitude that you have, then that's going to dictate your attitude, that's going to dictate your behaviors. And so being able to become aware of our mindsets Mm. Being able to reframe those mindsets and turn them into strength-based practices with strength-based outcomes, that'll help transform a population of, of educators. 
Wow. That's not a small thing. <laughs> um, <No>. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about the impact that would have on just the behavior in the classroom, right? You know, you talk about when we talk about the pyramid model, such a high percentage of behaviors can be prevented if we take a different approach sometimes and uh, can be easily dealt with if we remain positive, but how easily they will escalate if we at all come at the child or come to the child from a negative. And so it starts with the mindset. We have to learn to transform our language from deficit-based language to strength-based language. And like you were saying, just to switch it from positive language, like I, I hope this will happen as opposed to this will never happen. And this child is a bad kid to, you know, this, this child is, is wonderful when you give him this strategy to use. Mm-hmm. Or when he's in this area, he, he has a, a, that, you know, that, that, that's his way of learning. Changing our mindsets, changing our language, uh, the way we communicate with others, even our body language <laughs> does mm-hmm. a lot, you know, when, Ask a teacher who, who their le- least favorite child is and their body just, you know, tenses up, right? <laughs> tenses up. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of the, the ways that we can change our way of being. And I'm right there with you. I can see it as an outsider, you know, coming into a classroom. You know, maybe if I come into a classroom one week and then I don't return to that classroom for two more weeks or something, and there's been progress made that I see, you know, from my perspective, I, I can see great progress that they've made with a child, but they are still in the trenches and still in the weeds, so to speak. And the fact that the kid is only having 10 major tantrums a day instead of every 15 minutes all day, they don't even recognize that as progress yet because it's still so exhausting. Absolutely. And that's the importance of leadership. That support has to be there for someone to see the progress. And, you know, that cohort that I was talking about, that professional development system, the leader there, whether it's a director or whoever it is, part of their web of support is the mental health of the teacher. So how are you supporting their mental health, right? How are you uh, motivating them? How are you providing health opportunities for them to uh, get ideas on, hey, remember to drink water? Remember vitamins or exercise or, you know, other ways, strategies that they can use to continually, you need a, um, a drumbeat of reminders, right? <laughs> because we, we fall into the, like you were saying, into the trenches and we sometimes we forget to be mindful of our health and our experiences. And even just the reminders to breathe, you know, yes. um, I, I, yeah, I've, some of the best leaders I've seen have taken the time to engage in those practices with their teachers during meetings, whenever they have the opportunity to just do some mindfulness, do some deep breathing, and allow teachers to really feel how it feels to change their own state and feel relaxed. Because I don't think a lot of teachers feel relaxed, certainly not when in the classroom. It's They're on high alert all the time. They're moving, moving, moving. And there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of needs And so it's very difficult to be in a relaxed state when you're dealing with all that. But the leader taking that on and and saying, we're going to do five minutes of breathing or five minutes of meditation or just making it a practice, where else can it come from but the leadership? It's not going to come from internal, right? And also building in the space where they have time to do that. 
where we, we take time to do that, right? That's another role of leadership. Those of us who are supporting teachers, I guess our role is to continue providing outlets for the teacher or opportunities for the teacher, but also somehow working in trauma-based practices and the understanding from a learning perspective of just what trauma does to kids and continuing that. Are there any good professional development opportunities that you know of that teachers should engage in? Is it just really having peer learning opportunities to talk through stuff? At this point, we at the Carol Robertson Center, we're, we're trying to develop those systems. Actually, receive grant support from the McCormick Foundation. We're hoping that once the system is complete and it's been implemented, that uh, it'll be shared out nice. to the rest of the state as a model. Wow. And then we'll be able to move on from there to see what else we could, uh, we could accomplish as a whole. So with the assistance of the grant uh, that you received, you're developing your professional development system within the Carol Robertson Center or centers, right? Because it's numerous. Um, it is, yes. Uh-huh. And so that system it involves peer learning communities, right? Different tracks of peer learning communities. Anything else? Uh, co- coaches. We have, it's, it's actually amazing that we, we have a mental health department and an early childhood department. So we have the coaches, we're called program advisors and mental health advisors. Oh, so the teacher will have almost like a dual role, dual coaches there. One that focuses on the instructional component, the other one that focuses on their mental health. That's awesome. And, and you're talking about the student's mental health or the teacher's mental health or both? Both. Wow. So the mental health advisor would be the person who is coming in, observing children. Would they be the person who is involved in tier two supports and tier three supports if they are in need of more intervention? Yes, you got it. There's a team of us that come together and we have meetings on how to support um, that classroom. We have plans of actions, there's follow-ups and so forth. And so some of that involves obviously plans for children, behavior plans or whatever you'd call them, but also it involves specific supports for the teacher in order for the teacher to be able to get through difficult things. Absolutely. Or for the teacher, support for the physical classroom, because sometimes we have to transform the way the classroom looks in order to support both the children and the teachers. Resources, literature, uh, mindfulness activities. So what, what all did the grant provide? Did it provide materials for the classroom as well? training materials or it did yes it did that's awesome awesome because that stuff has to come from somewhere right we're our own grantee now from head start oh we, awesome we mm-hmm. congratulations so we gonna... thank you it's a big deal <laughs> uh, yeah that is a big deal yeah, that Amazing. is that's awesome so, yeah and so you know those funds will be used uh intentionally uh, to support the system that to be honest, it's it's lacking in the, in the field, you know. So it's it's great that we have the opportunity to build it, test it out, and then share with the community uh, what works, what you know, what needs to keep growing, and so forth. That's fantastic, and certainly um, 
it's one reason why we should have more grantees who are writing more innovative plans, right? I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. That's 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 one of my pet peeves is innovation. You have to give the platform to innovate because if we just follow a pre-described curriculum all the time. Right. Uh, and that's why I wrote the, the mathematizing book. <laughs> oh, is it? Because the... Yeah, because the, the art of curriculum design used to be on the teacher side. When you just follow a pre-described curriculum, that's taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. now the critical thinking is missing, the creativity is missing. You just follow a book. And not that the books aren't good, they're good, right? But they should be used in tandem with the creativity right. that the talents that the, the teachers bring to the table. Yeah, especially an emergent curriculum where the whole point is that you, the teacher has more agency and the teacher has more decision making <laughs> and innovation. And but teachers, pe- teachers need to feel be confident and and have things like your mathematizing book to have ideas. That brings us to the final, really my final thing, which is: Will you please come back and talk about the mathematizing? Oh, I'd love to. Because yes, absolutely. I mean, teachers get so excited about that. Whenever I've talked about it and just shared some of those ideas, shared some of your pictures, you have beautiful pictures in there of real kids and real teachers doing real activities. And it just gives people ideas and excitement about, oh, I could do that. And and they're not as afraid of, of planning math, you know. So yeah, you I'm going to have to pin you down for another another hour of time. I really am. I could talk to you all day, Alan. I really could. And you made, <laughs> you made this podcast like such a breeze. I'm usually worried about what am I going to talk about? How am I going to be organized? And just, <laughs> just all rolled off. So I really appreciate all the, all the insight that you shared and suggestions, strategies. Oh, there's just so much here. It's a rich, rich discussion. And I really appreciate your, what, everything you're doing. So I want to thank you so much and just give you a lot of, a lot of encouragement to keep doing more, write more stuff, write more books. (laughs) Let's collaborate sometime. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And and by the way, where did you get your art for your book? Did you contract with someone to draw pictures or did you take pictures or? So both. I took photography of the neighborhoods and then I hired an illustrator. Uh, who, had, who used mixed media to make uh-huh. do some of these illustrations. They came cool. out beautiful. Yeah, they are. They are. And I love the multiculturalism and uh, that's displayed and depicted and just the differences in experiences. It's relevant to so many of our kids in, in so many classrooms. So I appreciate it. And thank you again. I'm sure be talking to you again very soon. So thanks, Alan. Sounds good. Thank you, Sarah. This has been another episode of Every Child's Champion Podcast. For a copy of all our show notes from today, just go to www.synapseearlylearning.com and click on Podcasts and Show Notes. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Oh, and keep filling up those emotional piggy banks. Why? Because love lights up the brain and connections really do matter. You're not only a teacher, you are an attachment figure, a secure base. You really are making a difference. Be well, everyone. Stay safe out there. Talk to you soon.